This morning with our children away at Park Sunday, we take a break from our study of the book of Jonah to jump back into a letter that uh, we were in a couple of years ago, the book of Romans. This morning we're going to fo focus on Romans chapter 12. And the reason that I have uh, chosen this passage is because uh, in October I'm actually going to be going back down to North Carolina to speak at uh, something that they do in the s southern churches called homecoming. And uh, it's the church that I first was a part-time youth pastor in when I was in college. It's my hometown. And um, it's a church that doesn't preach the gospel. It's a church that has some pretty uh, troubling stances on various issues. And so I began to ask myself, what, what, do, what would I want to preach at this church if I had the opportunity? It's actually the church where my father attends. Um, and so I thought, well, why not preach on who we are called to be as the church? So in Romans chapter 12, we, we find Paul's, the beginning of Paul's application of everything he's written in the book of Romans so far. It's a, it's a powerful letter, but today we're going to focus on chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let us pray. Lord, we need this reminder from your word. In this dark and dying world, you have called us to be the light. But Lord, we confess there are times when our lives reflect more of what the world values than they do Christ. And Lord, we want that to change. Lord, we want to order our lives in a way that reveals that the hope that we have in Christ is truly our treasure, truly what we value most. We have been reconciled to you forever through the faithfulness of Jesus our Lord. We need to be reminded of your mercy. We need to be reminded of how we are to, to love one another. We need to be reminded of how we are to love the world. And we need your help to be faithful. So help us, we pray. Help me, I pray. As I preach, be glorified. As your people listen, be glorified. As we, with the Spirit's help, seek to apply these truths to our lives, be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Angela and I were watching a, a video this morning, which is not normally our practice on a Sunday morning, but I had just stumbled upon it. It was a, a man-on-the-street situation where he's going around with the microphone. You've probably seen this before. And they go up to unsuspecting people on the street and ask them a question. Give us your thoughts on this. Go. And, and oftentimes they, they can be humorous, sometimes a little scary and, and sometimes sad. And I think this morning's interview was a little bit of all three. So a handsome young man goes up to a young woman and he says, Ma'am, can I get your opinions on socialism? And don't worry, this is not a political statement. <laughs> And so she sat there for a moment. She said, well, I guess it kind of depends on who it's with. You and I are talking now. We're socializing, so that's a good thing, right? But I guess if you're talking to someone that you shouldn't be talking to, then socialism's bad. It's important that we understand the terms, right? This poor girl who appeared to be of college age clearly was confused on what the interviewer meant by the word socialism. And, and I looked at Angela and I said, you know, that's a great picture of life, is it not? It's important that we know the terms. 
It's important that we understand the terms, and it's important that we're clear with other people as Christians that they understand what we're talking about and where we're coming from. It matters that we're clear as Christians, brothers and sisters. It's more important than our political activism. It is more important than our favorite hobby or athlete or team that we get excited about. When it comes to what we believe and what we communicate as the body of Christ, clarity is essential. Because as we well know, sometimes two people can use the same word and mean two totally different things. And so we are at a, at a season in, in the life and in the history of the church where it must be clear who we are, what we believe, And this is done more than just through what we say, but also through how we live. Times are tough. And this means that we must strive as believers to be even more faithful in our public witness for one another uh, before others and in our personal care for each other within the church and as paul in in romans chapter 12 begins his application of of what he's written so far that that's exactly what he calls the church to to to, to live in such a way that makes it clear to the world that they are followers of Christ, that they are worshipers of the one true God. Paul describes in chapter 12 what it looks like to be a faithful church. So, new hope. This morning we're going to consider three ways that that we are called to be a more faithful church. The, the first way is, is seen in verses 1 and 2, and, and that is that we must be a church that is motivated by God's mercy. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we know that Paul's letter to the church in Rome is one of the longer epistles in the New Testament. In this book, we, 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 we find a glorious presentation of the gospel that, that deals with everything from the idolatrous, depraved nature of man to the great wonder of God's grace and mercy in the sacrifice of Jesus. 
from how Israel's rejection of Christ led to salvation being offered to the Gentiles to the fact that there will one day be a great awakening among the Jews to the gospel. Paul covers it all. He, he, he delves deep into the mysteries of God, like how the Holy Spirit gives life to the spiritually dead, how he awakens faith within us and empowers us to obey. Paul reminds us of God's ever-present grace in our lives as we struggle against sin and temptation. This is a glorious book, brothers and sisters, and, and in chapter 12... As I stated earlier, Paul begins a lengthy application which goes all the way to chapter 15. And I believe all of his application hinges on Paul's words in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. First of all, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, appeal is is the Greek word parakalao, And it means sincere exhortation or or to ask earnestly. But, But it envisions this idea of coming alongside someone to help them out. So, so, so Paul is, is not simply writing from the position of a preacher saying, do this, Romans. But also from the perspective of coming alongside, urging them. Come on, brothers. Come on, sisters. In, in view of God's mercy, live this way. In, embrace this understanding of who you are in Christ. It's, it's almost as if he's, he's cheering them on to greater faithfulness. And brothers and sisters, that is my goal this morning with you. I want to, to cheer you on and, and urge you. To, to see the importance of, of what is set before us this morning. That, that word parakaalo is also used to describe the role of the Holy Spirit as comforter. In these verses, Paul is serving as a wise counselor in urging the church to, to, to embrace who they are in Christ. Paul then goes on to to give the motivation for his appeal and and, and what should drive us as we seek to live for God by faith. The mercies of God. I I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And and mercies is a plural word. God's mercies, many of which Paul has already addressed here in, in Romans chapters 1 through 11, are indeed many. And Paul is directing us back to what he's written so far in the book of Romans. As believers, we are immersed in God's mercies. Think of the very nature of our salvation. What's it based on? Is it based on our deserving it? Don't deceive yourself. No. It's based on his love, his actions, and even his work in drawing us to himself. What keeps you saved, brothers and sisters? Is it your good intentions? Is it your obedience? Is it your weekly worship, your tithes and offerings? Not even close. It's the power 
of the sacrifice of Christ and, and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. What, what's the basis of our obedience? Is it self-discipline? Is it willpower? Now, while we are called to put forth effort, ultimately that effort is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we obey by faith. It's all evidence of God's mercy. The very fact that this entire planet hasn't been utterly destroyed hundreds of times over that because of man's rebellion against God is further evidence of God's mercy. So Paul's using this as the motivation in light of all that God has done. Live this way. So it's his mercies, active and present in our lives, that, that motivate us to do something. What's he called us to do? To, to present or to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Now, honestly, this could be the whole message in itself. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? What motivate us, motivates us matters, brothers and sisters. Paul makes it clear that true worship goes far beyond singing songs and showing up for various services. To worship someone or something is to ascribe value, or in the case of God, to recognize his immeasurable worth and to respond appropriately. We worship God because he is worthy of worship. Only God can speak universes into existence. Only the Son of God can bear the wrath of God and have the perfect life which is credited to those who respond to that sacrifice in faith. No one else could do it. I love you. I could give my life for you, but it would have no eternal saving value. Only Christ can save. It's worthy of worship. The book of Psalms de de describes the, 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 the vastness of God in, in terms like having the ability to, 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 to hold the depths of the oceans in his hands. There are places on earth where the earth goes down way further than it ever goes up at the highest peak in the world. God holds that as easily as a child could hold a marble. Speaks of, uh, 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 of power and worth. But when's the last time we were in awe of that? How often do we just read God's word and then we're on to the next thing that we do in the day rather than stopping and saying, wait a minute. That's a pretty incredible statement that the psalmist makes there. Wow. 
The earth seems very small these days because of technology and, and all the way that we can, can know what's going on everywhere, almost around the world, at a moment's notice. But in reality, it's quite large compared to us as individuals, is it not? But the earth is just a speck of dirt when it comes to the universe. And the universe is just a speck of dust when it comes to the entire cosmos. And yet God spoke these things into existence. That alone should give us such a sense of awe and reverence concerning who God is. That when we bring it to the personal letter level and begin to consider the gospel, it is almost mind-blowing that God would even take the time to redeem you and I. But he does so mercifully. He does so graciously. He does so lovingly, not just with an eye to some type of blanket salvation. Yes, I'm just going to throw this out here and anybody who believes can believe and they'll be welcomed in. But to the point where with the God who created everything, universes and, and things we'll never see in our earthly lives, knows you individually to the point that he knows the number of hairs that are on your head. That, that should shake us. It should inspire us. We have received mercy from God. He's worthy of worship. And he's worthy of us offering our lives in worship of him. Verse 2, Paul continues, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our minds are transformed, brothers and sisters, as the Holy Spirit illuminates God's word for us as we read it. Illuminates means to, to give understanding, to help us understand not just what it means, but how it applies. We, we take part in this transformation as, as the Spirit is at work within us by reading and applying the Bible to our lives. The, that phrase that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, in the original Greek it's emphasizing that discerning what God's will is, is the result of that previous phrase of being transformed. You can discern God's will because your mind is being transformed by God's word. Does that make sense? So often we, we, we treat God's will like it's some type of mystical treasure hunt that we're called to go on. But when we look into God's word, we see that as we immerse ourselves in his revealed will, then we prepare ourselves to be more open to, to those things about him that have not been revealed in his word. What are you going to do with your life? What type of person do you want to to marry. But it comes first from drawing near to him through what he said about himself in his word. 
Brothers and sisters, typically a mind that is set on God's word, a, a mind that is, is focused on the truth of Scripture is a discerning mind. Now, there are exceptions, of course, and, and this usually stems from faulty views of the Bible. But we cannot fail to see the authority of, Bible, of the Bible in our lives. That knowing the Bible is, is more than, than knowing the facts and the stories that you find there. Knowing the Bible is how we come to know God. This strengthens our faith. This equips us to how we should live. And it is all motivated by what God has done for us. Second aspect of a faithful church is that it's marked by humble service. Verses 3 through 8. Paul continues, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, verse 3 is a call to humility. That phrase, to think of himself more highly, simply means to be arrogant. So Paul warns against that. It's a simple reminder to have sober or sound judgment. That means to be a reasonable person or of sound mind. Now, we've all encountered people who have been under the influence of, uh, of alcohol or drugs, and, and so we understand what it looks like to have an unsound mind, do we not? In the drunken state, a, a person makes all kinds of bad decisions. We, we see this played out tragically, almost daily, in the newspapers. They're unable to think reasonably or soundly. And the consequences are deadly. Now, while it may not be in relation to the influence of a substance, we too are in danger of being unreasonable or of unsound mind when we allow pride to creep in. We, we live in an age where celebrities are worshipped, even in the Christian realm. We also live in a narcissistic time where our every thought, action, and opinion can be broadcasted to, to friends and followers all over the world. And it becomes a temptation to view our influence, our importance, based on the number of responses we get from our latest tweet or our latest post. And this isn't limited to just the cyber world. We often hunt for affirmation and adulation from others as well. Paul reminds us that we must see things as they truly are. Our worth is found in what Christ has done. And we are to serve him and to serve others in a way that reflects that we understand, brothers and sisters, that, that our value is not gained from man's opinion. 
I'm not valuable because 50 people liked my picture of what I made for dinner. <laughs> Although if it's a good recipe, please share. It's great. Those are fun. There's nothing sinful in that. But we must never forget. We must never forget that our worth is found in Christ alone. Now, I use that example because I posted what I made for dinner a while ago. So, if you're feeling convicted, that's on me. Our worth is found in Christ alone. That has to be the banner that waves over our lives, dear ones. Listen again to verses 4 through 8. Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, this should sound very familiar to those who were here when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul addresses the same issues. I think I actually referred to Romans chapter 12 in that sermon. But Paul is describing an interdependence on one another that must exist in order for the church to function as we should. He uses the, the metaphor of a body to remind us that everyone is essential in order for the church to be healthy. All gifts are to be used for the building up of the body. We're, we're not called to, to value one role over another, but to serve faithfully for his glory and the good of others. Paul lists seven ways in which the church is edified, and this list is not intended to be comprehensive but illustrative. There are many ways that we're called to serve and strengthen the church. In serving humbly, we, we do so by recognizing the importance of others and also realizing that God's purposes are not dependent on individuals. Each of us can be replaced, and that's a good thing. We're, we're not building our own kingdom here at New Hope, but we are serving as God builds his eternal kingdom. His examples are straightforward. As, as we serve in whatever we do, we're supposed to do so in a way that reflects we are seeking to bring God glory. Being a healthy church is more than simply humbly serving in view of God's mercies. Being a healthy church also means that our relationships with others are transformed as well. A healthy church must manifest God's love. Manifest God's love in two ways. First of all, inside the church, verses 9 through 13. Paul continues, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. 
serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Sadly and, and honestly, it's often inside the church is where it can be most difficult to be known by our grace and love. And, and I think one of those reasons is fear, why this is the case. We, we often go through life with an idea of ourselves that we want others to see. And we're afraid that if they see us as we really are, then they will reject us. After all, we, we're Christians. We go to church. We're supposed to have our act together, right? I mean, heaven forbid that we admit that our struggles are, are real and we pull back the curtain to, to show what's really going on in our lives. I think we also struggle with cultivating loving and gracious relationships within the church because the contemporary church has lost our perspective. Our priorities line up more with the American dream than the description of the church we find in the Bible. We are busy people. Our schedules are full. We have places to go, people to see, and things that we must get done. And much of what fills our schedules is, is often necessary and good, but the quality of most of our relationships could be much better, especially within the church. Remember, we are motivated and empowered by God's mercies, and with his help, we can develop meaningful relationships in the church. And Paul gives us a great starting point in verses 9 through 13. He begins by saying, Let love be genuine. We know what genuine is. It means to be authentic, to be without hypocrisy. A good understanding of, 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 of love is to do, it means to, to do what is best for the other person. And what Paul has in view here is a sincere concern and desire for the well-being of other people. This involves a, a willingness to invest ourselves in others, and, and that can be difficult I mean, brothers and sisters, we can do friendly, right? Friendly is easy. Friendly is passing by. Friendly is a short conversation. Friendly's not bad. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that friendly and fellowship are the same thing. And it's clear not just from Romans chapter 12, but, but the testimony of the entire New Testament as it relates to the church is that there is an interconnectedness and interdependence on one another that must exist for the church to be all that we have been called to be as followers of Christ. So, so, so let's covenant together, brothers and sisters. Actually, we have already members to pursue relationships beyond simply friendly. We can only go deeper in the body of Christ as we keep God's mercies in view. Let me explain what I mean. 
Each one of us faces struggles and, and issues. Whether we're willing to admit it or not, they embarrass us. They, they bring about shame or, or we think they are significant enough that, 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 that if we talk to other people, they're going to reject us. So, so what do we do? We, we hide them. We, we cover it up. We, we pretend that everything is fine. All the while, in our minds, we're thinking, if they really knew me, they would not accept me. So let's factor in God's mercies. God knows our struggles and our failures. And Jesus' death redeems us and, and reconciles us. We, we've been made clean, brothers and sisters. We must remember that, 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 that our brothers and sisters in Christ are also dealing with struggles and sin. And their guilt and shame are covered by Christ as well. We, we can go deeper. We can know one another because we are standing on level ground at the foot of the cross as those redeemed by God's grace. When we struggle alone, we lose sight of the gospel and we lose sight of our God. Living in loving relationships in the church puts us in a position where we can be surrounded by the people who can remind us of what's true. They can remind us of God's mercy. and They can help us get back on our feet again. I haven't used this saying in a while, but, but some of you have heard it a hundred times if you've heard it once. In the church, lone rangers become dead strangers. Those are the ones who are disconnected from the body of Christ. They are evil, easy pickings for our enemy, the evil one. Your faith was not intended by your Savior to be lived alone. Not even simply in the context of your human family, but specifically in the context of the church of Jesus Christ. We are a friendly church. I, I hear that all the time, brothers and sisters. But we're also a loving church. I, I've seen it in action and I've experienced it myself. But brothers and sisters, there is always room for growth. Seated among us, there are likely people who feel disconnected from the church. What have we done to change that perception? I'll give you a hint. It can't all be done here between 9.30 and 11.30 on Sunday morning. It can't even all be done here between 8 o'clock and 2 o'clock on a Sunday. It happens as we connect with one another daily and weekly. And each one of us have an obligation to make that effort in love. Because we have received God's mercy. We have been called to show God's mercy and God's love. And honestly, we have committed to one another to do those things. And so... Those who need encourage, encouragement to, to, to do that, 
be encouraged. Those who need to be convicted, be convicted. But we must act in concert with who we've been called to be as the body of Christ. The the rest of verses 9 through 13 describe the effects of genuine love. Genuine love means that we learn to, to hate those things that are evil and delight in what is good. It means that there will be a genuine familial affection that we have for one another in the body of Christ. It means we go out of our way as as believers to to seek to show other people in the church more honor than we want to receive ourselves. It means that we have a zeal, an eagerness for the things of God and that we're enthusiastic in the Spirit of God. It means that we rejoice in, in the hope of the gospel. It means that we are patient and long-suffering when we deal with trials and tribulation. It means that we are a people of prayer. And it means that we must be generous and hospitable in our relationships with one another. That is who we are called to be as the body of Christ. And in all those things, brothers and sisters, is where we find joy. But our love doesn't just stay inside the church. It's called also to exist outside the church as well. Verses 14 through 21. Paul continues, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Very quickly, summary. In these verses, Paul makes it clear that our love and grace should be evident even to those outside the church. It is seen not just in our love for, for other believers, but also in our love for those outside the faith, even those who hate us. And this is a clear call, church, to engage the culture with the love of Christ. For, from those who, for those who persecute us, we're called to bless them rather than curse in return. We've been called to compassion and empathy, harmony and humility, to, to live honorably and peaceably, and to trust God in matters of justice. takes the work of God's Spirit to be able to say kind things to people who slander you, to people who belittle what you believe. There are some here who work in situations where making fun of the faith is 
sport. It's what people do. But how we respond in those situations matters. We don't shy away from the truth. But we can speak the truth in love. We can take a stand in love. And we can serve in love, brothers and sisters. May the world know that we love God because we love each other. May the world know that we love God because of how we respond to those who hate us. And may the world know that we love God because of our faithful proclamation of his saving gospel. I want to close with three points of application. First of all, I would like to challenge every Christian in this room to make it a daily practice to reflect on the mercy and grace that God has shown you. Pray about God's act of, acts of mercy. Talk to others about God's acts of mercy. And rejoice in God's acts of mercy towards you. Members, take seriously the covenant that you've made with your church family. Seek out ways to serve one another in love and to, and to serve within the context of the ministries of the church. And finally, prioritize showing God's love in all your interactions. It's hard to vilify those we disagree with when we are more concerned about their souls than we are about winning the argument. We must still take a stand. And in so doing, we must model the love and forgiveness that they need from Christ. May God help us to do just that. Let us pray. Lord, I pray first for any unbelievers among us. Lord, that they would first see that, that everything that, that is set before us in Romans chapter 12 means nothing to them until they have responded in faith to what Christ has done. In the ultimate act of mercy, in bearing the wrath of God for their sins. So Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth, that they would respond by trusting fully in Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross where he bore your wrath against their sins that they could be forgiven, that he rose as the proof that their faith in him would not be in vain, and Lord, that they would seek to live their lives for your glory. Lord, second, I, I pray for the believers among us who are on the fringe, uh, the fringes of church life, Lord, I, I pray that you would just open their eyes to the, to, to the blessings of, uh, of, of truly engaging wholeheartedly with your people. Lord, help them to see that you have provided a, a context where we are called to live out our faith in, in a way that we cannot do it anywhere else, and that is in the, the context of the life of the church. Help us to value what you have created as good. 
And Lord, for the members among us, Lord, I, I pray that this would be a week of, uh, of taking steps to actively love and encourage one another. Lord, if there are areas where forgiveness must be sought, relationships repaired, Lord, give us the courage to take those steps for your glory and for the health of your church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.